Good morning, everyone. Isn't it beautiful outside? Finally, feel, feels just a little bit like fall. I mean, we know Colorado, this is fake fall. And then we'll go into like triple summer and then first winter into second fall. I mean, it's just, it's wonderful here. Welcome. So glad you're all here. So happy to be with you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Stephen Atherton. I'm one of the pastors here at the church alongside John Cuppinger, Jake Pence, and Dan Hardy, who's currently on sabbatical. So if you uh, get a chance, be praying for Dan and Nancy while they're, while they're currently in Italy. So, I mean, you know, they should be praying for us here while they're in Italy, right? This morning, we get to continue on in our series in Malachi. Last week, Pastor Dan opened up the book with Malachi 1.1, and today, as you just heard, we're continuing on with Malachi 1, 2 through 5. So over the years, I've struggled at times, and I'm sure each of us has, just watching the pain and the brokenness that's all around us in this world, especially when it comes to watching the evil world prosper while the righteous suffer. So at times, I know we can forget the truth that God is already the victor. The war has already been won by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, uh, defeating death. But even having this knowledge, it can still be lost on us while watching people we love go through cancer, watching helplessly as bad things happen to good people. Seeing innocent children get terminal diagnoses. Couples who are so desperately wanting children, but they're, they're barren and they're unable to. With the list, it just goes on and on, and I know everyone in here has something that popped into their head that they can think of this morning with this. Each of us inevitably has something like this visible in our lives. In the world we live in today, it's so easy to get caught up in the rabbit hole thought process of life not being what we want it to be. Nothing is the way we hoped for or what we expected it to be. The world seems to just be falling apart at the seams. Death and brokenness seem to be prevailing. Pain looks to be winning. Evil seems to be winning at the same time with the inevitable thought that crosses our mind from time to time. How can you say you love us, God? How have you loved us, God? As my world falls apart, how do you love me? As the lives of those I love begin to collapse, how can you say that you love me? As the darkness is prospering, how can you say you love us? And from this thought process stems angst and frustration, right? From this creates doubt of God's love at all, which creates the production of a lack of care and a lack of worship emerges from that, which is so similar to the account that's laid, us for, uh, that's laid out for us in Malachi that we're going to be continuing to dive into today. Because just like the people then, and for us now, we can quickly forget about God's love for us. Watching these hard things unfold around us, we're living life like that little girl who picks the flower, wondering if their crush really loves them. He loves me, pick the petal, drop it on the floor. He loves me not, pick the second petal, drop it on the floor. 
with a back and forth questioning, does he love us or does he not? And from God's word, we're going to see something emerge that we have to remember this morning and we have to lean on. Just as the people then needed to hear this exact same thing, we have to remember God's love for his people. We have to remember God's love for his people. His never stopping, never ending, always and forever love. And from this point of God's love for his people, we're going to see two things come out of it. God showing his love through the protection of his people. And because of his great name that will be made known, we, his people, will praise his name. When things happen, we can question God's love, but he calls us to remember his love from the beginning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you are just so good. God, we are so grateful that we can gather here together today to worship you. God, I know each of us walks into this building today with burdens of some kind. God, I know there are people in this building that are hurting that are questioning your love and your goodness. And God, I pray from your word this morning, God, you would show your love, that you would be made known, known in a massive, mighty way. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't pulled out your Bible yet, go and do that now. If you don't have a Bible, just like what you heard a few seconds ago, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Feel free to grab it. We're on page eight. What? 801. 801. Thank you, Kelly. appreciate it. I even have here in my notes, get page number for Bible. Apparently, I didn't do that. So this book, as we heard from Dan last week, it begins with a description in verse 1 of what we're about to read. So this book, written by God's messenger, Malachi, is an oracle to the people of Israel. It's, it's a burden of the Lord for his people. And it begins boldly with a statement that sets the tone for the entirety of the book in verse 2. And honestly, I would say that this is the tone throughout all of Scripture. One simple phrase. I have loved you. You have this introduction of this is the book, and then God starts. I have loved you. First words in Malachi 1-2. So knowing Israel's terrible past and consistent betrayal to repentance, then betrayal over and over, despite all of that, God still starts with that beautiful line, I have loved you. And on its own, this reminder should from the get-go bring our lives, our struggles, our failures, and our weaknesses into perspective. That through it all, just like Israel, I love you is still at the forefront. This reminder of love for us today takes us directly to the truth that in all of our failings, that in the brokenness of the world, Jesus, God, the Savior, came to this place to live the perfect life, to die as the perfect sacrifice, rising again, showing his power over death, and ascending to the right hand of the Father. 
So for us here and now, remembering that when we believe this truth, we understand our own sinful brokenness and the need of a Savior, we're saved, we're adopted, we're secured, and that truth by itself should bring us back to the knowledge of this ultimate love for us. Walking into this book, that should be at the forefront. God's love for his people. From this simple yet beyond profound phrase, we step directly into the first disputation, the first dispute from man to God. Malachi 1 2, again beginning with, I have loved you, says the Lord. And the people respond to this statement with an arrogant, backhanded question Really, God, how have you loved us? So right here, knowing the backdrop that Dan shared with us last week, we see a people that know God, but they feel like he's not there. Because of the trials and the tribulations that they've endured, that they've gone through, because life is not the way that they want it to be. Because look over here, there's a second temple, and it pales in comparison to the first. Because their promised king they heard about from the beginning. He's not here. We have this temple and no king. And there's a million other reasons the people of Israel felt justified in questioning this love of God that he presented. So we might right here tend to immediately judge the Israelites for their arrogant firing back to God. But I want us to take a second and put ourselves in their shoes before we move forward. Are there times in your life you can recall, or maybe it's even right now, I'm sure there's people in here right now, where that same question comes up? The question we talked about from the beginning, how have you loved me? So while studying this, one of my very first thoughts after reading it was exactly as I said, like, really, Israel? Really? After all that you've done, after all God has done for you, how dare you question him? But then I remembered all the times I've done the exact same thing. When a sinful, broken world made no sense, when life didn't look like how I wanted it to look. So in 2015, Jen, my wife, was 20 weeks pregnant with our son, Malachi. It's pretty awesome. His name is Malachi. And we were so beyond excited to meet this little guy for the first time at this ultrasound, especially since just a few months before we had had a miscarriage, which was just completely devastating to us. So this was really important for us. This was exciting. This was the day we got to meet him. So we went in. Jen sat down. They put that weird blue goo stuff on her stomach. Don't know what it is. It's weird. And there he was on that little black and white screen. You have no idea what you're looking at, but they're like, that's a baby. Cool. Okay. That's our son. But then something happened. The nurse walked out as fast as she could, and she brought a doctor in. He studied the ultrasound. They whispered a little bit together and said, you need to go to Children's Hospital right now. So as it looks like we were getting to meet our son, and it's this beautiful day, 
they come to us with this news, we have to leave, and the reason was because he's missing a piece of his heart. So needless to say, even though I know God, even though I trust him, in brokenness, the second I heard this, I questioned God. How can you say you love us, God? How could you allow this to happen? How can you say you love us? It made no sense to me. We're going to finish that story just a little bit later. But from this, it takes us full circle back to the question at hand. How have you loved us? Now, in this moment, did God have to answer this question to the Israelites? Did he have to? Everything that he had done for them up to this point should have been enough, right? He's already proven himself time and time again. Even God, starting in this, in this passage with my love, his love should have been enough. But in his indescribable love, he mentioned that we mentioned at first, he answers, taking them all the way back to the beginning of the people of Israel. God's basically saying, fine, you want proof? Let's take it back 1,576 years to Jacob and Esau. So to fully understand what we're about to study, we need to fully understand the accounts that took place to make what God says so impactful to the people in Malchus' time. Taking us to Genesis 25, 21 through 23. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So Isaac, who is the son of Abraham had a wife named Rebekah, as we just heard, and said she was barren. And Isaac prayed that she would become pregnant, and his prayer was answered. But in the joy of being pregnant, but not just pregnant, pregnant with twins, something really concerned Rebekah. She felt that the babies inside her were struggling together in her womb, that they were fighting together. Now, I feel like when I was, just bear with me for a second, this is where my brain goes. That must have been an experience, right? I was thinking, was it like an MMA fight in her stomach? Like you hear a tiny little bell go off, and then all of a sudden her stomach just like starts rumbling around? I don't know. I feel like people would pay to see that though, right? (laughs) Never heard of babies fighting in a stomach. But in all seriousness, she was so concerned about this struggle that she asked the Lord. And he responded with one of the big pieces of what we're talking about this morning. Saying, There are two nations in you that will be divided. One will be stronger, but the stronger will serve the weaker. And God at every turn in Scripture takes the weak and shows his strength. He uses the small and helpless because through them, the world would see it's only by him and through him what is happening is possible. This pattern continues all the way to the end of the Old Testament where we're at now, and it works its way all the way through into the New Testament. So fast forward a little bit. Rebecca and Isaac have their two sons, Jacob and Esau. 
And Esau must have been the one getting the junk beat out of him because when he came out, the reason they named him Esau is because he was red. Uh, funny, that's a joke. That's not, that's not really real. In our preaching collective thing, I said that, and Chad's like, were you being serious? Like, I, just, I was like, I'll make sure. Like, <laughs> I put it out there, totally a joke. But they really did name him Esau because he came out red. Anyways, takes us to Genesis 25, 29 through 33. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So Esau, being the oldest, was the one who was to inherit the birthright. And for those of you that don't know, the birthright was a big deal in this culture. The birthright was when the firstborn son would inherit his father's possessions and all of his authority. So this was really important. So now in in this passage, in Genesis, we see Esau's true colors come out. It's not just red. We see he's willing to sell his birthright for a cup of stew. And it says, therefore, he was called Edom because of this, which is so important for our passage today. The oldest, the strongest, the one who would seemingly be the rightful heir gave it all up for some soup, giving it to the weaker, smaller one, who would now inherit the father's possessions and authority. So if you're a note taker, here's just a couple important things, just backtrack. These brothers would be two nations. The older Esau would serve the younger Jacob. Esau was called Edom. And the birthright went to the younger Jacob. So continuing on, we need to look at Genesis 27. So with Isaac not knowing the trade between Jacob and Esau, Jacob had to get clever. He had to trick his dad into giving him the birthright. So he put on fur on his arms, because Esau was a, a hairy guy, and he lied to Isaac so that he could receive the blessing, so he could receive the birthright. And that just takes the story into an epic spiral, going into a whole gamut of things that take place from Jacob marrying not one, but two women that he got tricked into marrying. Then in Genesis 32, Jacob is scared to death of Esau because he hears that he's coming for him after everything that took place between them. Genesis 33, one of the biggest twists in the story Jacob and Esau see each other, and they think it's going to be a battle, and Esau runs up to him in tears, and they reconcile. Genesis 35, 9 through 15, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob no longer. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set a pillar pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. With the story 
of the two nations coming full circle where God renames Jacob Israel. So you have Jacob, Israel, Esau, Edom. And in this, God's reaffirming the promise made to Abraham, talking about a nation of kings coming from this line. And as we know today, the everlasting king would come from this line. So there you go. One full history lesson to start off our time. Anyone else like history? Yeah, a couple of you. I love it. In my mind, it helps bring the passage that you're studying to life, knowing the full backdrop of what took place to get there. And right this, it throws us forward 1,560 years again back to the book of Malachi. So again, we see the start. I have loved you. How have you loved us? And then God's response of, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. So the first pushback by God to the people in this first disputation would have been an immediate callback and an immediate reminder to the people. In one simple phrase, is not Esau Jacob's brother, yet Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. The entirety of the Israelites' history starting from the beginning, is put on display right here. Immediately pointing them back to the promise made by God to Abraham, then reiterated to Jacob, speaking of a chosen people, a mighty nation, a people chosen by God for God. A chosen line that someday would produce the Savior, the one who would bring peace in the brokenness. So this phrase right here can and does get confused quickly. So to understand why this is a callback and why it's important, we need to dissect these words here just a little bit. So the word love and hate here are not the love and hate you and I think of. So the love-hate language does not signify comparative love or hate individually. Right here, God's love for Jacob refers to Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. The people and nation of Israel and God's sovereignly elected people from whom Jesus would come. So in this language, it can actually more accurately be translated, God chose for intimate relationship with Israel, and God did not choose for intimate relationship with the Edomites. So it actually says in Deuteronomy 23.7, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Abhor meaning, you guessed it, hate. The actual meaning of hate. So to take it back to what I was saying about the importance to the people, is it was a reminder of their status as God's chosen people. God's chosen people with whom the king of all would come. God's chosen people that, as we're going to see in a moment, were restored when their enemies fell. Not by their own doing, but by God's. Not because of merit or worth, but because of God's good, sovereign purposes. Continuing on saying, Malachi 1.3, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. So the people at this time, as I stated before, had become apathetic in their faith. they become bitter towards God and just all around frustrated with how their lives were going. 
a big piece to this was their anger regarding their enemies because their enemies had been prospering in so many ways over the years. Israel's thinking, we lost our temple. We watched Jerusalem burn. We were sent into exile all while Edom was taking advantage of Jerusalem while it was being destroyed. The Edomites were actually casting lots and wreaking havoc, as it says in Jeremiah. So the people were mad. They had their expectations set on something that would never be fulfilled the way they wanted it to be. So this verse is a reminder, on top of the reminder of their status as God's chosen people, that even through the trials, even when it's hard and the enemy seems to be succeeding, God is in control. He will always show himself to be bigger and stronger over the enemies of his chosen people. So yeah, in the Israelites' consistent failings, there was punishment. Those things that happened, there, there was punishment with verses like Jeremiah 9, 11 through 13, speaking into it with similar language. Think about the, the verse we just read in Malachi, talking about jackals and destruction. It says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a layer of jackals. Sound familiar? And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. To verse 13, and the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it. These things are happening because of this. With God immediately firing back, though, with the declaration of destruction to Edom for their treachery. Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring calamity of Esau upon him. The time when I punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places. He is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. This is also a reference from Obadiah where the Edomites thought they were hot stuff when they were taking advantage of Jerusalem thinking they could do whatever they wanted. Obadiah 1, 1 through 4 is talking about the destruction of Edom because of their treachery. 1.10, saying that because of violence there, a nation cut off forever. Shame shall cover you. You are cut off. But Edom, in its wicked mindset, still thought it was wise to challenge God, saying, fine, God, you destroy, and we're just going to keep rebuilding, as it says in our next verse. Edom says, verse 4, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So Edom was a vile people group, bent on Israel's destruction. But as we've seen so many times before, God's not going to have that. He's just going to tear down what they try to do, constantly showing his ultimate power over the Israelites' enemies. God loves his people. From the beginning, God loves his people with number one, he shows his love through his protection. All through these verses would have brought the people's minds back to center where it was supposed to be. Processing through the fact that even in the trials, Israel still stands. Even though Edom seemed to be succeeding for a time, they will be destroyed. God showing his power consistently through this tiny nation 
that will continue to stand only by him and through him. Taking us back to the main point at the beginning, like we just said, God loves his people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you're more in number than any of the other people. The Lord says, love and you chose, and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps his covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statute and the rules that I command you today. So God in every way shows his awesome power, making his name known through these people. Not because they're the biggest, but because actually they're the smallest. He shows his power through the triumphs over their enemies. Showing the world and the nations he is God. Malachi 1.5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Israel, my chosen people who I love and protect, don't you see that even though you're small, I will always sustain you. And not only do I sustain you, the entirety of the nations will see my awesome power through you. And no, I'm not just God of Israel. I'm creator God over all, in all, and through all. Moving forward slightly into next week's passage, we see a consistent theme through this book tying into our final verse here, Malachi 1.11. For from the rising of the sun to setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So through all the disputes, through all the questioning and responding, one thing consistently rings true. God's name will be made great. His name will be feared throughout the nations, and his love will be seen throughout the generations. The people then lost sight of this, just as we do consistently today. To them, he's saying in his first dispute, I love you, my people. I will protect you. I will show my power through you, and my name will be made known and great through this broken nation, and the people will praise seeing this great love. And for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the same thing is being said, I love you, my people, I will protect you, and my name will be known and made great through you weak, broken vessels, and you will praise me seeing this love. So back to my story, we got to children's, after this crazy diagnosis with Malachi, we went in and we saw the best cardiologist in the entire area who came in, looked at the ultrasound, kept looking at it, looking at it, walked out of the room, and I'm telling you, there was no communication. We're just sitting there like, what is, 
I mean, you know how doctor's offices are. They'll just walk in, look at you, and just walk out 40 minutes later. That's exactly what happened. But in this, the doctor walked back in with, I'm probably over-exaggerating this like I do with everything, but there was at least 30 doctors that walked in. No, there's 4,000 doctors that walked into the room. And all of them started analyzing this. Talk about awkward. Still no one talking to us with all these people crowded in this room. And then they start talking to us about what was going on. Bring us the incredible, literally unbelievable news that he was not missing a piece of his heart. But he's completely backwards. Every organ... And my little son is opposite of everyone else. It's called situs inversus totalis. And it's literally a one in a million. So living out his namesake, God's messenger, before he was even born, God showing his love and his power through something so small to these non-believing doctors, blessing Jen and I with this miracle that showed his love on display, even when we were questioning his love at all. Now, I'm not saying every situation in trial has an outcome like this. But from this experience for us, we questioned God's love, and even in our questioning, God showed us his love with the visual of his protection. And we praised his name as the lost world watched in awe at the God of the universe. But like I said, sometimes we don't get to see the miracles and the sicknesses. We live in a broken, messed up world where bad things do happen to good people. Because of the fall, because of sin. We're just like at that time for the Israelites, the enemy did seem to be prospering. But in all of it, this is our reminder that we are loved. We are secured by the blood of Jesus on the cross which gives us a full assurance of a perfect heavenly home in a perfect relationship with our Creator. So even if this world is hard, which it is, the truth remains, God will prevail. There can still be that lingering question of, how have you loved us, God? As we look around and see evil looking to prevail, we have to constantly remember the war has already been won, even if the battle still rages. The Savior the Israelites looked to in the Old Testament and the one we know intimately now has already defeated death. In Christ we have salvation. We have the knowledge that we are loved. We are protected from the devil and schemes and he will show his power through us no matter how weak we might be with his name being glorified in all of it. So if you sit here today in the place the Israelites were in, questioning God, his love, even his presence, I pray this is a wake-up call and a reminder that he's faithful even in the brokenness. He's with you in the pain and the trials, even if he might seem far. With a reminder that we have a firm foundation in Christ, that even in hardship we know this truth. This isn't our home. Our war is not against flesh and blood. God loves us. And he shows us his love through his protection. 
And from this, his name will be known. And we will praise that beautiful name. Let's pray. Lord God, um, just thinking through this, I, I just I know that there is, there is pain here, God. That there are trials happening right now. God, I pray that you would make your presence known. God, we know and we see here that you love us, but sometimes it is hard to see. So God, I pray that you would be the comforter of all comforters as we know you are. Kind that you would consistently remind us of your great love. Just name.